You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Natalie torres Haddad, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. Twenty twenty was a year of great social upheaval, protests, and even riots. Some of the worst that we have seen in decades. Many of us, however, remember when four police officers who had been videotaped beating motorist Rodney King were found not guilty of criminal acts in nineteen ninety two. The city of Los Angeles erupted in what, at the time, was the worst rioting seen in the U.S. since the nineteen sixties. The loss of life and destruction of property left a significant scar on the city. By the time the riots ended, 63 people had been killed, 2,383 had been injured, and more than 12,000 had been arrested. And estimates of property damage were over $1 billion. The Rodney King riots not only reduced taxable sales in the city immediately following the unrest, but had a lasting impact on the economic performance of the city of Los Angeles. 2017 studies show that the communities most affected by the L.A. uprising have seen little, if any, economic growth during the past two and a half decades. In some neighborhoods, unemployment and poverty have worsened despite efforts by community leaders to boost economic development. Natalie Torres Haddad was born in El Salvador, but was brought up in Inglewood, California in the early 1990s. At the age of 10, everything changed with the L.A. uprising. She could no longer play outside, her parents put bars on her windows, restaurants and stores were looted and burnt down to the ground in her neighborhood, and she grew up wanting to do something about it. Accordingly, she went to college to learn about finances and to help her community. She got a major in finance and international business, but unfortunately, she still didn't understand the meaning of true financial literacy. During her second year of grad school, burdened by student and credit card debt, a mortgage, and running a burgeoning nonprofit, she lost her job and suffered a severe bout of depression, which culminated in a short stay in an acute psychiatric hospital. The moment of clarity she experienced shortly thereafter would ultimately change her trajectory and introduce her to the five steps that made her realize that she would be okay. Let's take a listen to an excerpt of her TEDx talk titled The Foreign Language of Financial Literacy. There was a whiteboard and gave me five steps to let me know I was gonna be okay. One is become aware that you're not alone. As a child, it's easier to learn a language as opposed to when we're older. And so we start having that conversation daily. And when we become aware, it's okay, I'm gonna mess up. And if you do mess up, you can turn to people. Number two, you need to take action now, no matter where you are financially. And what that means is start taking action by maybe taking 20 minutes out of your day to learn something about financial literacy. 
Number three, incorporate new resources. I love that right now everybody seems to be singing that hook by Cardi B. I know you know it if you hear me say it. I don't dance now. I make money moves, right? It puts us in this mood and you're like, huh, she's talking about financial decisions. She's talking about money moves, right? So guess what? If we start incorporating music, something that makes us happy, think about it. When you learned the alphabet, you sang it because it was easier to remember. A, B, C, A, B, C. So if we start incorporating music that talks about money, the situations, the difficulties, the mistakes you might make, how to avoid those. The last one, five, is probably the hardest one for most is be patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself. Like I said, as we're adults, learning this new language can be very frustrating. Natalie Torres Haddad is a two-time TEDx speaker and international award-winning author of Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes, a bilingual podcast host, international keynote speaker, and educator. She has been featured in the Huffington Post, LA Times, 60 Second Docs, and a Honda commercial playing herself as a financial expert. She now is a successful real estate investor and enjoys a career traveling across the country advocating for financial and women's empowerment and teaching the foreign language of financial literacy. Natalie Torres Haddad, welcome to Earn and Invest. Tell me, how old were you when your family moved from El Salvador to Inglewood? I was a baby, so I was barely a year old. And compare and contrast a little bit about the financial possibilities for your family in El Salvador versus Inglewood at that time before the LA uprising. You know, for our family, being Central American and specifically from El Salvador, we, well, my entire, most of my entire family fled during the Civil War. So it wasn't necessarily that my family came here for job opportunities or to create wealth. My family was actually doing okay, not better than okay in, in, in some, some places. And unfortunately, with just with, with Civil War, any type of war, your whole world is uprooted. And so my family had to make the difficult decision of thinking that they'd be moving temporarily, basically seeking refuge. And, and that's how we all ended up in LA. We actually had two aunts already that lived here years prior working and basically having the regular life. And so here they had to start all over again. My mom and my dad were somewhat established at home in El Salvador and having to now start cleaning houses, working odd jobs. My dad would try to take any type of job possible was, I can only imagine probably the most humbling experience for them, but extremely difficult when they had pretty good lives back there. So it obviously had a turn on me as the kid that now saw my parents struggling. My dad didn't know any any English. My mom luckily um, knew, knew English. So that definitely helped them. Were your parents able to bring any of their wealth with them? I think about my parent-in-laws, my father-in-law and mother-in-law came from Iran and they came very quickly because of social upheaval there. And they had to leave everything they owned in Iran. Was it the same for you guys? Yes. My parents said they were lucky that they had saved a few thousand dollars. And this was the early 80s. So they had some means, but you know, that's another thing that I think a lot of people forget that you're leaving everything you've owned and, and had. My grandfather had to sell all his businesses, his home. They were ready to retire. They were actually excuse, about to retire. They were both 60. And so to see my parents and talk about it, talk about it all the time, they said, oh yeah, we left everything behind our friends, our family. And back then there was no social media. So when you left, you didn't know if 
if people were still alive. My mom's unfortunately brother, my uncle was killed and he was a civilian. So all of that trauma was not only brought here, it was, it was also hidden. I didn't learn about this stuff from my parents until I was in college when I was asking questions because I knew how difficult it was for our family to even talk about the traumas of, of war and also losing a loved one. You speak of the traumas of war, losing a loved one, moving countries. In a moment, we're going to talk about the trauma of the LA uprising. But can you remember back before that happened, did your family feel like their financial prospects were pretty good, that they could make a new life for themselves there in LA? I was lucky. My parents are pretty optimistic. And that's something they, they, they did really well of saying, you know what? You have every opportunity here. The U.S. is a place where you can make yourself great. And, and my mom and my dad were very adamant that you have to go to college, get your education. I was the first in my family to graduate with my master's as well. And so they knew that I'd have opportunities here. And so I think that's something that I felt always. And as a kid, I, you don't know that you're poor or that you, you, you don't have, I guess, problems. I was lucky enough that my parents always made sure we had everything we needed that was necessary so I, I felt early on, I never dealt that until, until I went to private school in high school. I saw the big difference between the financially wealthy and myself and two other people that were like, oh, we're the poorest kids at the school. <laughs> so you start to see the difference. <laughs> Just before we started this conversation, before we were on air, I started talking about the LA riots and you said, oh, you know, people where I come from talk about it as the LA uprising. It really made me kind of understand how much of an impact this had on your life. Talk about how it changed things for you and maybe even changed things for you about your feelings about finances. So I was 10 years old when that was happening. Watching that, most people watched it on TV. I, we lived in Inglewood, so we weren't far from, you know, everything in South LA that was happening. So trying to understand the gravity of that is it's still, it's still, we still don't understand it. I remember grown men not understanding it. And even my mentor who lived through the Watts riots in 72 and then LA King. And now with last year's George Floyd, he, I mean, he was saying every 20 years you see this and how some things have changed, but how many things haven't. And so I know early on when that happened, my favorite restaurant was this cute little Italian restaurant down the street, like a few blocks from where we lived immigrant owned and just it's been in the community forever it was burnt and burnt to the ground and they lost everything my mom's like you know what you might feel like you can't help but you could you know volunteer and so she had me volunteer after school at this local food shelter which she now is really involved with as well and I got to see a lot of my own neighbors community coming to get food and and it wasn't that they were extremely they were struggling obviously but they weren't struggling before that happened. So for a lot of people don't understand when a riot happens, when any vandalism happens in your neighborhood, that it instills a fear. And usually those neighborhoods, my neighborhood are already struggling financially. We don't have the same resources a city or two city always have. Like we, we don't have the best, I noticed the difference. Our, our library systems were horrible compared to two cities away that had everything that you could imagine. You start to really understand that our city is a community and trying to help each other out, but it's also community of immigrants, community of people that have debt or maybe don't just have any credit. They don't know how to manage their money. Maybe the language is also another barrier. I live in a community where you could get away with not speaking any English because everyone speaks Spanish. I mean, most of California, right? <laughs> that really pivoted the way I saw money. And I was that student in college 
freshman year, I never changed my major. I knew I wanted to learn finance and international business. I double majored because I knew that there is something about not only learning how to make money, but how to really affect our community because we don't see, we still don't see that much representation in our cities are not only doing the best that they can, but they're doing the best they can with the little things that are available to them, even when it comes to the lack of resources that aren't available to us all. It's interesting, as you talk about the change before the uprising and after, I'm really reminded of this idea of generational trauma. You speak of the riots, the Watts riots, and then there was the LA uprising, and of course, we've had 2020 now. And for those of us who are not a part and parcel of that geography, for those of us who are not in the midst of it, we don't necessarily realize that the effects of these types of things can last for decades and even generations. Yes, that's such a good point. And the funny thing is, I didn't really notice that until I was about my late 20s, that you had mentioned I had started a nonprofit and it was, you know, helping most of the girls were in foster care. So I understood they were coming from very difficult backgrounds. What I, what I realized is going to college, you are automatically immersed in a sea of diversity, right? And, and what I mean, not necessarily color diversity, but background of, I had people that, you know, were from other states. And, and so we never even talked about the LA riots because none of my friends lived in my city. And I usually was the only woman of color in all my business classes, um, usually the only woman as well too, in certain programs. And so it wasn't a conversation to have. And then later on, when I started getting hired to work a lot in the Midwest or different parts of the country, I realized the word LA riots is what people associate with, but they also don't understand that. And I didn't want to make it to feel like you have to understand, but I think it's, it's always helpful for people to see that if they hold our pain, if they hold some of our frustration, then it could become a universal problem that we can say, well, let's, let's come up with the universal solution for this. Because I, I've been in certain like little towns and in, in the Midwest, and I'm like, well, how would they feel any of our pain if they never experienced this? But then I go to some other towns in the Midwest where they're like, they food scarcity. They have, you know, they might be all primarily white, but they do deal with a lot of the frustrations that a lot of brown and black communities deal with. And I meet other immigrants that maybe weren't here because, you know, with refuge, but they have very similar traumatic stories that now they, we come from a scarcity mindset instead of an abundance mindset. And so that generational trauma also affects our generational wealth because just for example, I had a conversation with my one of my sorority sisters last week. I was part of the Greek system and honestly, it was like an MBA for me. Our, our, our class, my was like, we were constantly doing stuff for, you know, nonprofit stuff on the side. We were, we were basically being groomed to be the, the next president and CEOs of our companies. And most of them were, they were like third generation business owners. Their parents already had multiple, whatever. So the funny thing is I learned from them and I usually had those moments where I'm like, okay, no one has my background. No one has my frustrations, but I learned so much from them in that sense. And having that conversation with her last week, I said, you know, it's easier to keep moving forward and knowing that there's some financial um, opportunities when you're surrounded with people that that's what they're talking about. And so as opposed to maybe you're surrounded with people that you grew up with that are just really trying to get day, day, you know, day by day, they're trying to figure it out, try to pay their rent. And for them, they're thinking more long-term because they don't have to worry about taking care of their parents or their grandparents or getting assistance in some kind of program because they can barely afford it. And so, and we know disproportionately women, especially women of color, we make less money when it comes to the way, what we earn. And so there's so many different factors that affect the way we think 
that it's sometimes harder to get past that and think like, how am I going to think, you know, about the future of retiring and, and, you know, having some financial independence. But I think it's also important having those conversations with people that don't necessarily know what we went through in that sense. So for me, it's been a, a blessing and a, a, maybe a kind of a curse sometimes <laughs> in disguise. <laughs> Why do you think you were different? I mean, so you grew up in this place where you saw some of the restaurants burnt down, you had bars put on your window for safety, yet that pushed you towards double majoring in college, getting interested in personal finance. <laughs> what do you think fueled that fire for you, made you different and able to pursue that path? I'll tell you a story I've never shared and I've been on a lot of podcasts, but most recently I was thinking what really sparked it. And it was before, no, it was right after the riots. My grandmother used to um, walk us around the neighborhood together, you know, like my little cousins and I, and she would take us on these nature walks. She loved nature where they used to live in El Salvador. They were surrounded by nature and she would teach us about flowers and little things. But one day there was a pile of trash and tons of toys. There must've been an apartment that had just moved out you know, you look at that. And as a kid, you're like, this is such a dump. Like, why do we, you know, why are we living here when you know, there's better neighborhoods, that kind of thing. Right. And she looked at me and and she goes, you know, this is the land of opportunity. And, you know, we live in the richest land in the world. And I looked at her like, what do you mean? (laughs) But this is, and this is how smart my abuelita was. She says, she goes, look, there's a pens and there's pencils on the floor. Some of them are brand new. I remember, but she's like those pencils. She's like, it would take me about three weeks to gather up 15 cents when I was a little girl. So I could buy a pencil and I would use that pencil till there was no eraser, till there was no more lead in it. And I could write, I could do math. I taught, she taught herself how to play the piano. She's like, you can solve so many problems with pencils and people here just throw them away. You can pick them up, sell them or use it for your, for your own education. And for me, that's something that really sparked like, oh, she's talking about resources. We have resources of wealth. We have libraries in the country, right? Other countries, they there's no such thing. And so that is something that I think fueled it and understanding that from ugliness, there can be some beauty still if we can see past that. And, and especially this 2020, I have to be honest with you, Doc, even last time we had the conversation together to our panel, it was, I had no idea that someone can be or myself dealing with postpartum uh, depression, you can say from, from the riots. I had my mentor who is 70 years old, he lives in Compton and, you know, he's been through a lot of stuff and he's seen it and and I say, I, I'm about to be 40 and I still don't understand half of these things. And I get frustrated when I see things on TV, but the difference this time around, as opposed to when I was 10, how beautiful it felt to see other people involved in this, what we call the movement, right? As opposed to back then, it was usually just primarily black and brown people. And at that point, I felt nobody was listening to us. So I think that's something that really does keep me hopeful and And that's why I advocate for money because I'm like, at the end of the day, if you got the money, you can make some decisions or you can help other people. And then you're also not coming from a a scarcity mindset. (laughs) As I listen to you tell this story, I realize there's layers, right? So you have that initial inkling. And for you, it sounds like the LA uprising was that initial inkling. You went and double majored. You eventually even went to grad school and got a master's, but I've heard you say that you weren't particularly financially literate yet. What did you mean by that? So I went back to grad school seven years after I graduated from undergrad. And during grad school, you know, you're surrounded by professionals, you know, people that have been working for a long time. And at that point, I started, you know, I lived on my own. I had just bought my first place. I, I was also running a successful nonprofit. And so guess what? You have all these extra financial 
responsibilities, right? There's people that are looking for you. We had, you know, 11 board members. We had a, at least 100 volunteers per event. And, you know, I was also working full time. <laughs> and now I had this mortgage by myself, you know, as a single woman and trying to figure that out. And so this added on responsibility. And I'm like, wait, my classes didn't teach me how to balance my my luxuries, my necessities to what, what to get by. And also, also how to deal with student debt back then there wasn't as much resources online, definitely not social media or, you know, very few YouTube videos, or I guess you could say you had to pay more money to find out how to manage your money. So that's kind of what also ignites, ignited me to not only learn how to manage my own personal life, but also seek help from people that have been doing it well and have been doing it for generations. So I think that's the thing I always tell people, ask, ask the right people for some advice. And I, I've been fortunate to be surrounded by people that have helped me along the way. And that's partly why I want to help others do the same. And in fact, this all came to a head when you were in the midst of graduate school, running your nonprofit and paying off a mortgage, and then you lost your job. Yeah. 2007 and eight was not a great year. <laughs> As a as a, as a Latina or just as, as, as a, a recent grad, let's just say. At that time, actually, I was going into my second year of grad school, but I was really embarrassed and ashamed to even tell my family members or my close friends that I was finding myself in, in debt and in more debt because I had taken out a student loan. I had just lost my job. And obviously, the recession had hit hard. And at that time, I was the only one in grad school. So I also felt like my friends might not know what I'm going through. And because it was in our cultures too, it's still a taboo or considered a taboo to talk about your mental health, but your mental health is correlation with your financial health. And sometimes when people say, well, is it the sickness that got you in debt or is it the debt that got you sick? Right. You don't necessarily always know which. And for me, prior to that happening to me, as far as dealing with depression, I was already teaching financial literacy and I was excited about it. But until I found myself now into this new chapter, which a lot of people experience later on, my therapist says, what you went through, a lot of people go through their, in their midlife crisis. <laughs> she's like, you got a, you got a house, you got a business and, you know, you know, all these things that were happening to you that she's like, most people don't know so much later. And I think that was the aha moment for me that we all go through different chapters. And I, I want young people, especially to know this, that it can happen to you at any time. I was barely 30 when I had that mental breakdown and I was always really healthy. And my friends, I have two friends who have been say, a therapist for decades. And she said, after my breakdown, she looked at her profession differently because she said, you were the, she goes, Nat, you're the girl that you seemed always, you had it together. You're always happy, always healthy. You're the least likely person that I could think that would be dealing with depression or have a mental breakdown. And made me feel better to thinking like, you know what, it can happen to anybody. And so that's partly why I started to feel comfortable talking about it. But it took me eight years to actually say something out loud to tell people that this is what I went through for eight years. Only my close family members and friends knew what I had gone through. So it's been a a game changer in my career, but it's been the most fulfilling hearing other people that they're not alone and that my stories help them as well. Let's go back to that moment. You were hospitalized for something like 30 hours in an acute psychiatric facility. At that time, was it clear to you that this was a debt or financial issue? Like, could you parse it out and say, okay, I feel like I'm in a financial hole and that's what's causing this problem? You know what? Not necessarily. I knew there was a lot of stress around that because at that point, I want to say it was a couple months or maybe a little more that my, you know, I no longer my, my full employment. And so 
I remember being stressed. I, I, when people don't understand depression can be in so many different forms, but for me, it was, I was having insomnia and I was craving, you know, sugars and I was crying for no reason, usually by myself or, you know, and it was because of that frustration of like, oh my God, I'm just afraid that I was about to lose my home. Or I was afraid that I wouldn't have enough to, you know, pay my mortgage or my food. Or, or I was also afraid that I wouldn't be able to finish school at that time. Cause I was still like wanting to do that. And it was a bunch of factors. Obviously I had a lot going on. I, I tell people, I look back, I'm like, I was hustling so much, which I don't recommend <laughs> for that reason, because I was letting go of forgetting to take care of myself. Right. And, and it's kind of part of our culture. We're always too, for, for Latinas, particularly women, we're taught to say yes all the time. And since then I've learned to say my culture is no, 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 because the more I say no, then I can focus on the things that are going to be helpful for me and my, my community. But I think looking back while I was in the, in the acute psychiatric, I, I look back at some of those journal writings that I did. And I remember one particular uh, day, I, I, it was, I was there for 36 hours, but it felt like you were there for like a week. The time went so slow. There's no clock. You, you know, I remember crying a lot and, and looking around. And the, and the sad thing is you get put into, you don't get displaced. It's like, oh, this girl's got it together. She's just going through a mental break. You just put in a, a mental breakdown with everybody. And so there's people with that were drug addicts, people that were dealing with other frustrations. And so I was scared too, because I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't believe I was there. That's why I kept on saying, how can I get here? Why was I, why am I here? What, you know, that was that frustration. And I remember meeting this 24 year old, I want to say he was Persian. I can't remember his name, but he, he was like, oh yeah, super smart guy. I had five, knew five languages, has, was a senior year. Um, he's going to be a doctor, like super bright. And I was like, why are you here? And then he goes, why are you here? And then I started telling him too what I was, he was like, yeah, you're doing a lot of stuff too. And so it was these added on duties and responsibilities. A lot of it, it was financial though, because I had, I no longer had insurance too. So guess what? I was thinking great out of pocket expenses and I had never gone therapy before either. So to deal with all these traumatic things that were happening at that moment, it would have been a lifesaver. And when I tell people invest in your therapist now, <laughs> it'll your, 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 your checkbook will thank you later. <laughs> Let's take a break. I'm talking to Natalie Torres Haddad. She realized she wanted to educate her community as a consequence of living through the LA uprisings as a child. Her goal is to teach foreign language and financial literacy. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing. And there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals. And let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. 
Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020. Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to view some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Zippin, innovating the trillion-dollar retail industry with checkout-free technology. Already deployed by the world's largest food service company, Zippin is ahead of the game as the retail world adopts the safety and efficiency of contactless payments. You can get in early on Zippin and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join rcrowd. The rcrowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowd.com slash EAI. Let me take a moment to reintroduce you. Natalie Torres Haddad was born in El Salvador, but grew up in Inglewood. Her early experiences drove her to become a financial educator, author, and real estate investor. Before the break, we talked about her acute depressive episode and being in a psychiatric hospital. Natalie, shortly after you left, you say you had an epiphany and you talk about five steps that let you know that you were going to be okay. What happened? (laughs) So I was in the lunchroom of this acute psychiatric hospital. I was really lucky because everyone, all the staff were super nice, super helpful. And, you know, they were encouraging. And I remember sitting there looking at the whiteboard inside this cafeteria and the whiteboard had only five things on there. And I'm looking, reading the the bullet points. And I asked one of the nurses, I'm like, has that been there the whole time? And she's like, yeah, since you got here. And I'm like, and it was like, it just kept, I feel like it just appeared. And one of the things was like shower eat your eat your food, go outside, like had basic, basic self-care tips. And it was five of them. And when I was reading those five tips, the last one was be patient with yourself. And that was the epiphany where I was like, these are five basic human things we should be doing for ourselves. But when it comes to the financial side, we are not, we are the least comforting. You can say to ourselves, we're extremely critical and we want it done. Now we want it fixed. We want that debt to be gone. We want to, you know, be the gurus of our money. And yet it's not like that at all. And that's why I tell people, it's like a language you, you, you learn, it takes time. You have to do it daily and it's always evolving. So in order to become fluent, you have to really take the time to do it. And so being patient with yourself was like the key. And that was really helpful while I was sitting there because I thought, if I was only more patient with myself, I could have realized that I was suffering and needed to talk to somebody, but I could have also opened up to my family and my friends and say, Hey, I need help. Or I'm not sure if I need help. And that's the thing. I wasn't, I had some savings. I wasn't in financial ruins yet at that, <laughs> thought. but that's what I was thinking. Oh no, I'm heading in that direction. I had mentors and this was during right when the recession hit. So I had mentors that had lost so much money. They've lost their properties and And I was thinking, oh my God, that can happen to me. Right. And so I think if I would have been patient enough to know that it's going to be okay, but I need to ask for help. And maybe it's just talking to someone, having that awkward conversation with my family members or my friends and say, Hey, you know what? 
I just lost my job. I don't, I'm not asking you for money, but I just want you to know. So if I'm stressed out or if I can't do something with you, cause I don't have the means right now, you know, just let you know, or I'm letting you know. And I think that would have been a real big difference because till this day, my friends tell me, you know, we wish we would have known you hit it so well, you know, you're always so happy and you were, you were, and I always tell people, ask your strongest friend how they're doing. Cause they're the ones that no one decides to check on. Cause they're like, Oh, she's got it. She's, she's doing it. She's the boss. And it's like, uh, just check in. <laughs> so that I think looking back, that's something I always tell people, like, just try to have those awkward conversations. You'll feel better about it. They'll feel better about it. And, and you never know, there's some solutions that come from it. So, I mean, I think I look back and sitting in that was the worst, but yet the best thing that had happened to me, because I was lucky enough that once I got out, I had family and friends that loved me and and that were like, we're going to get you, help you through this. And so Sometimes I know a lot of people, sometimes they suffer alone and they don't have that help and go the other way. I feel like there's this connection between the mental health stigma and the personal finance stigma and debt. You didn't really talk about the mental health issues until what, eight years later when you did your TEDx talk. Why was that the right time? Like, why did it all of a sudden come out and you connect the two? I got teary-eyed when you said that because, so I was offered the TEDx talk, which was a dream come true. I still can't believe I had that opportunity. And it was going to be about financial literacy. And I had already been practicing. I had my coach. I already had this, you know, this less than 10 minute conversation about my career, basically. That's your whole life. Yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. Working on that. And then my grandmother unexpectedly passed away from a heart attack first week of January. And I was extremely close to my grandmother and, and my talk was less than three months away. And for those that don't know, these type of platforms, it's one, you never know. It's a life, you know, once in a life opportunity, but you don't know how public they'll be or whether maybe five people see the video. <laughs> but I also felt because of her passing and I was mourning and I was just trying to figure out, you know, the loss of that. I I was thinking about her. I'm like, she was probably the strongest woman I've ever known. She was a single mom and she worked her butt off. She She did things that she was the original person that I could say knew what she was doing. And I know not many people have that particular strong, you know, uh, hero, you could say, or Shiro. And so when I was thinking about her, I thought how she struggled with money and the things that I'm doing now. And that's probably why I was at the end. I'm like, I'm like, I'm her wildest dream come true because even though I thought I was going through some difficult times at the time, I'm still better off than she was. You know, I had more opportunities. I had more resources. I even had the education she always wanted for me. And so I think a week or two before the actual talk, you know, we do the practices and then they, I flew into, I was in Davenport, Iowa, where I gave my talk in front of a live audience. Majority of people there, uh, by the way, it's like less than a handful were people of color. So I wasn't sure if they were going to get certain things that I was referring to. And it was, it was such an interesting experience, but the best part was I felt like she was channeling to me and I wanted to let someone that was watching the video, if they were going through depression or thinking of horrible things to say, you know what? it's going to be okay. And, you know, your, your grandparents dreamed you up somehow, believe it or not. Right. And that we're living better lives than they did. And so at least we hope so. And that, you know, we could, we can make them proud. And so I think the reason why I said I, I dealt with depression and I decided two weeks before the actual talk and I changed it up was because I think when I look at her, she went through so many struggles and never, never complained or never really shared him with me. And as when she died is when I learned a lot about her single journey that she went through. 
And so it made me appreciate more. And I thought, this is how we need to let people know that maybe some people deal with depression, deal with sickness or, or deal with financial unwellness, I guess, financial, I don't know, debt or whatever you want to call it. Being able to publicly say that out loud was the scariest thing I've ever done. My family, my friends were scared for me. I was scared publicly saying, especially on such an open platform. I look back up, I was crazy, but I was, again, I said I was mourning and I wasn't thinking clearly, but uh, (laughs) they were scared for me because they didn't know how the world would react. They didn't know how my colleagues or my friends or other family members would react to me saying I dealt with this and I was in acute psychiatric hospital. But the best thing I have to tell you at the end of my talk, they had a live uh, lounge afterwards. This lady came up to me. I, she was about 65. She came up, she was crying, gave me a hug. And she said, I thought I was dying. And I looked at her and she goes, I just got laid off from my job that she was at for 30 years. Um, she goes, I just got laid off and I hadn't told anyone. And I was, and she's like, the things that you said, was what I've been feeling. And I looked at her and I, you know, gave her a hug and I'm like, it's going to be, you know, okay. But like, I could tell she felt better. And then this other lady she came up to me and hugged me and whispered in my ear. She's like, I've never told anyone, but I went through what you through, went through in a hospital. And I'm looking at her. She must have been at least 70. And I'm like, to carry that much pain or shame or embarrassment for that long, I can't imagine. And I, you know, I thanked her for sharing that with her, sharing that with me. But I felt better afterwards. And I had no idea. I, I, I suffered from, was it the hangover afterwards? Like, what did I just do? <laughs> But it helped me because a lot of people now, because of my career, know me, associate me with the importance of mental health. And and I think that's what really shifted to make sure that people understand how that's connected to the two. And I always say, I think it was because of my grandma's death that just made me feel a little fearless and maybe go temporarily a little crazy for it. And I did. (laughs) You know, I feel like in 2021, we are so brand sensitive. Those of us who are creators or educators I imagine it was scary associating mental health with your brand, but in general, it sounds like it made it stronger over the long term. There's a pros and cons. I I feel like I have more benefits from it in a sense, but sometimes I don't know if I'm always going to be, and like many people, we feel like we might be pigeonholed to this class, like, oh, she's the mental health person or, right. And it's like, um, I'm other things as well. Right. (laughs) And the truth is sometimes I still go through therapy. I still do therapy. I still deal with, you know, thinking about those traumas and how to deal with it. I mean, it's been almost 10 years since that happened to me or more than 10 years now, but I still sometimes don't know how I'm going to react when I tell my story. Usually I've said it so many times that I feel like it's, it's maybe a little stronger in the sense, but there's times where it hit me hard that day. And I'm like sharing like today, I got a little tear when you asked me that question, because sometimes you just don't know how you feel. Sometimes you see other people struggling. And, and so it's helped my career in, a, in many ways, but there's always that. I think that's part of what I'm still working through is the challenge of not seeing it as a stigma and not seeing it as a weakness because I've been conditioned to think society's conditioned to tell me that it's not okay to have a bad day or a mental breakdown or be in a hospital or, you know, have mental illness. So I think those are things that I'm constantly working on to help hopefully change that for others too. You talked about pigeonholes, and certainly we've brought up your story of growing up in an impoverished area. We've talked about mental health struggles. There are some other pigeonholes that you tend to fall into, including being a woman and being Latina. Tell us about the struggle in 2021. Is the glass ceiling dissipating? Is it gone? Have we broken through some of it, or is it just as strong as ever? 
to explain the way I feel, and I'm not speaking for all Latinas for sure, <laughs> or all women of color, but depending on different industries and depending what, obviously in my industry, I think the way I see it is I'm there with the hammer and I'm seeing it crack, which I think that's the different feeling as opposed to maybe 10 years ago when I was the only woman and especially in the companies that I work for. And, you know, you feel like that's never going to happen. So seeing that crack, but then this is what happened. Like I said, depending on the industry, I see that they could shatter and I'm like, cool, I just broke through a huge, you know, accomplishment. And then they're like, there's another ceiling. (laughs) So I'm hopeful. And you're right. As Latinas right now, we're, we're obviously advocating for equal pay for all for all. And why I'm so advocating also especially for Latinas, because we still make the least amount of money in majority of industries. And so sometimes I feel like, is this ever going to change? I say yes, because I'm a hopeful, optimistic person. But I think with 2021, I am seeing some really cool things happening. We just announced that we did something never done in podcasting before. So I think those are the things that I allow me to think that we can make it better. We can have an equal playing field, but it's going to take a lot of work with help from allies. And so the, for me, sometimes when people ask me, this happened recently, I was on a conference or announced to be a part of a conference. And I was actually called out by another fellow Latina. She's like, you're like the only Latinx there. And and, and for me, and, and there's some other diversity, but she, she said it with such a frustration and I, I got where she was coming from, but I said, you know what? I know what they're doing. They're changing it up. They're trying to be more diverse. But if, if someone's not being represented, then we're still going to have to work just as hard. So if, 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 if it's going to be me as a token person right now, then I will do it because being the first, sometimes majority of the time it sucks. <laughs> you know, they say you get your kicked, your kicked, what is it? The teeth, uh, your teeth can get kicked in getting through that wall for the first person. And then everyone else is like, thanks for doing that. Right. And I feel like that happens to me all the time. And they're like, Oh, when you started a podcast or when you did this, I'm like, I didn't come out clean, you know, compared to now. And so, but I also think about the women behind me, the, the men behind me that have overcome so much and have helped break those um, stereotypes and, and have put themselves in through, you know, different places that we didn't really see ourselves. So I think for me, I'm extremely hopeful of what, where the future is heading. And especially when I see some of the younger generation too, I'm like, that's so cool. Their confidence, the different things that they're tackling. I was so afraid to ever say something like that. And now I seem like, that's cool. I'm not the only one that thought that. <laughs> Nally Torres Haddad is a financial educator and author of Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment. I'm Doc G and this is Earn and Invest. Hey, everybody. Just wanted to take a moment to remind you of two resources that are available. If you are enjoying the conversations we're having every Monday and Thursday, check out the Earn and Invest blog. That's at earnandinvest.com backslash blog. There, basically, I write about personal finance and financial independence. It is a continuation of the conversation that starts in the podcast Also, as you guys already know, there is the Earn and Invest Facebook group. That is at earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There we have the conversations about anything and everything that's going on in our world from the podcast episode to the latest news cycle to what's happening in personal finance in general. This is where we build community, earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. I'd love to see you there and become part of our community. We 
We are talking to Natalie Torres Haddad. She was born in El Salvador, but grew up in Inglewood. Her early experiences drove her to become a financial educator, author, and real estate investor. Before the break, we were talking about being a Latina in the personal finance world today. Was 2020 reminiscent for you? I mean, the social upheaval, the pandemic, did it bring you back to the LA uprising? And do you feel like anything's changed? Yes, I feel some things have changed. It brought me back a lot. I had to do some extra therapy sessions, let's just say, (laughs) and conversations with other friends that had lived through what I lived through, you know, talking about some traumas that were like, I didn't even know that was a, a thing, you know, or I had no idea that I would be affected by it, you know, almost 30 years later. And 2020, like many people, it was a year of reflection, a year of being with yourself, with your mind in that sense. So for me, I kind of felt like it was a moment to pause and just be like, okay, this is what's happening in my life. And it was not easy, by the way. 2020 was extremely difficult for many of us. I actually lost a few family members and friends to COVID and the and also my husband got sick. I fractured my arm, which I had never had a cast or broken anything before. <laughs> and this is what I, my hand that I do everything with, of course. And my dog needed surgery or how, like there was this, it felt like everything was happening at once, right? And so I felt with 2020, it just made me really grateful for all the things that you have, even the, the problems or the, what we call, you know, I think the privileged problems really, you know, I think for me, looking back, I, I saw 2020 that like, wow, how blessed we are, what opportunity we have to another year. I had a, a friend who was 39 who passed away of COVID. And so you can't imagine, I can't imagine really the life that we're going to have a year from now. And I don't really want to, I, I like to now take time and say every day is, I'm taking it day by day. I'm taking a lot more risk than I would have, I think a year ago. I know some people are like, oh, they're the opposite. They're like being a lot more careful. I'm like, no, I'm being a little bit more aggressive on some of my investments. I'm being a little bit more um, daring than I've ever been before. And I think it's because of that. Cause I'm like, what am I waiting for? You know, you never know if you're gone the next day. And also I'm also being careful, like, Hey, I need to make sure I have enough for that rainy day. Because if it wasn't for our emergency fund, it wasn't for certain money moves I did before 2020, I would be telling a different story right now. And so looking back, I tell people like what I've learned the first time around the first recession, I definitely didn't repeat them this time. And it, it was a lifesaver. And knowing that LA uprising was so impactful for me and then seeing the movement of people, you know, walking and protesting was also very inspirational. I wasn't out there. My husband and I physically couldn't be out there too, because we didn't want to, well, we couldn't afford getting sick again. And so we didn't have COVID, but dealing with other stuff and seeing, you know, people in the streets and, and really other allies talking on behalf of us. I think that was so cool. And it was, I think it was Dave Chappelle that said, he's like, what a world we live in now. He's like, when you see moms in Portland, you know, protesting for Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, yeah, that's so different than as, you know, as a 10 year old, I still remember this, one of our neighbors, big, tall black man, super nice. He was like this, like, he was like this bear, but he was tough. You see him, you're like, whoa, this guy's big. And I remember him crying, you know, when um, the Rodney King verdict came out and I'm like looking at him thinking like, why is he crying? I don't understand what is going on. And so those are the things that stick with you throughout your life. And, and now to see people advocating constantly talking to others and checking in with people too. I, I, I don't think I've had as many conversations as I had this past year with, with my girlfriends who have sons that are black, sons that are brown, sons that, you know, 
that they're constantly worried about their future. And so, you know, just checking in on them more. And I think that's something that I think people forget of once this is done, I think once the pandemic's over, a lot of people go back to the way they were and not to say they don't care, but if they don't live in the communities or they're not affected by it, they might not be a part of it. But I have this really strong feeling that there's going to be a lot of people that are like, no, this, this needs to change. And I'm really, I'm really hopeful and thankful for that. Natalie, you are a personal finance educator, and we love to say personal finance is personal. On the other hand, your life is this interesting juxtaposition of sociopolitical changes and occurrences. It begs the question, when we're talking about our financial lives, how much of it is personal responsibility versus looking towards greater legislative change? Oh, that's such a complex question and a good one. I think that's that's really the debate right now is where we're trying to get the other side to see, hey, you know, let's, for example, a college student who just graduated, if they're graduating with six figures of debt, they're starting life with not only debt, but less opportunity, possibly worse credit, you know, the frustration, the depression, all these other factors that are going to affect them to start a healthy life, right? A healthy or balanced career, balance anything. And and that's not completely their fault. You know, like sometimes I'll hear like the old generation, oh, it's because they bought a TV or they went on this trip or, and I go, no, that's just to pay for student loans, to pay for their books. Or, you know, our tuition system has gotten so ridiculously expensive. I also believe that for black and brown communities, as I mentioned, a lot of our resources aren't the same throughout the city, right? So a lot of people don't understand. I actually grew up in an incorporated part of the city. So there's different parts of Inglewood that actually financially have the the city backing and resources as opposed to unincorporated parts, which you don't have those resources. So it's kind of up to the community to fundraise and do money. And so, you know, when you get exposed to some of those, and I call them injustices, especially when I, I live so close to some really affluent cities where they'll have the, the same resource we have technically, but then they'll have extra fundraisers. They have wealthier people. They have more property tax money coming in. And so they can benefit from it. And most recently, this made huge news in our area. The city of Manhattan Beach just gave back Bruce's Beach, which is, I recommend your listeners to do a little research on them. But about a hundred years ago, they did eminent domain and took this land from a black family, Bruce's family, and just recently are giving it back to them with some reparations. I mean, not all of that, but to see that generational wealth was taken away from them, right? And so, you know, for black and brown communities, we are already starting, you know, I remember seeing this picture where there's this lady (laughs) hunched over and she, you know, she's, I think she was a brown woman ready to take a race. And it had all these different hurdles in front of her. She's like, oh, she's going to get paid less. Oh, but she has to also take care of her parents. Oh, she's a first generation college student. Like all these different. And then they had this other guy that's like, oh, I'm getting paid this, you know, two times the, the amount you are. And I don't have to worry about all these additional responsibilities and challenges. So a lot of it has to do with the way our society is set up to not necessarily help the those that need it more. But some of it has to do with the personal responsibility of, then again, they getting the education, right? Having access to that education too, because even that's partly why I do my content bilingual. I did it for the first few years and I really started to see the impact when the kids um, that were graduating saying, hey, how do I explain this to my parents? How do I have that conversation with them? Because if they're not on board, they won't understand what I'm doing. And so 
I'm like, that's, that's the game changer. The best gift a parent can give to their kid is say, don't worry. I got my finances straight. I'm healthy. You can take care of your own life instead of saying, Hey, are you going to take care of me when, you know, when I'm old, that's a lot of pressure because they're not only trying to take care of themselves, they're taking care of their kids and now their parents. So we're in this um, really odd level, I think you could say. But yeah, it's a long way to answer that question because it's extremely complicated. And I think you and I can have a whole conversation in another episode on that. Well, Natalie, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. I feel like your story wonderfully paints the canvas of what America in 2021 feels like. It is complicated. In some ways, it's glorious. In other ways, it's heartbreaking. And listening to your stories helps us realize that not only do we have a long way to go, but we've also come quite a far way. Thank you for being on the show. And if people are interested in learning more about your story, what's the best way for them to find you? Financially Savvy Latina and Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes is the name of the podcast, the book, everything in social media as well. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Natalie Torres Haddad. That's a wrap. Welcome back to the community segment of Earn and Invest. Today, I wanted to speak of something difficult. This is actually going to be the basis of a live fireside chat that I'm going to do, and it's going to be next week's episode about financial abuse. Any of you who are up on the personal finance social media saw a Twitter feed from someone who is very well loved and respected in our community where she talked about her own personal, physical, financial, and sexual abuse. For any of us who knew this person, it was an incredibly hard Twitter thread to read. And even if you don't know her, what she was saying was difficult about the realities of financial abuse and how much of a role it plays in people's lives. It was especially stunning because this is one of the strongest, smartest voices in personal finance today. So to hear her tell of her own history of being financially abused, it's surprising because most of us look at her and say, boy, she's so strong, she's so smart. But I think that's really the point. Abuse is not a failing of the person who has been abused. It's a failing of the abuser. Abuse happens to people who are savvy. It happens to strong people. And in our case, when we're talking about personal finance, it happens to people who also understand how to deal with their money and finances. It was shocking to read this Twitter thread, and yet so, so important and brave for her to come out and talk about her experience. I think if we don't talk about these things... There's no way we can learn if we're not willing to step up and say, I've been a part of this problem, and here is what I've learned. Here are some possible solutions. Hey, if you're going through it too, you're not alone. I've been there also. Kudos to this personal finance content producer for standing up and talking about something difficult something that we need to talk more about that is financial abuse in the context of physical and sexual abuse. They run together. 
And so I'm going to do a live fireside chat with Diana Miriam and Kitty from Bitches Get Riches, and that will become an episode for you all to, to listen to next Monday. So keep tuned, and we will have that conversation here on Earn and Invest, the place where we sometimes have these difficult conversations. We take a step further, delve in a bit deeper, and try to figure out what's going on in our lives and how to make the right decisions by earning and investing in our future. I hope you have a great rest of your week and we will see you on Monday. Cool. Thank you. Any <laughs> questions? No, I think that's awesome. Um, I know you record in advance too, so I guess you'll let me know. Yeah, four to six weeks. Again, I'm, I'm changing some things around. I'm changing the structure and the sound of the show a little bit. Um but I think that was a really great conversation. I think you have, I know some of the stuff is things you've told already, but I feel like it's been a long time since we've heard kind of the basics of your story. And I was talking to Joe Salcihai about it and he's like, yeah, you, you need to go back and talk to her about her childhood. So I was like, okay, that that's, I think it's a good kind of way to pull in the story and remind people who you are and, and kind of the, the stuff you've done. And, and congrats on the pivot. I think that's always cool to see podcasts changing some of that, you know, changing it up a bit and, um, that's the cool thing about podcasting. You can kind of figure out what, what works better. And, and you're obviously catering to the times right now. So um, good for you for doing that too. So hey. thank you for having me a part of this. <laughs> no problem. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. 